You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm David Grubbs. I'll be your host this week. I am an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. Uh, With me this week is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are you, sir? Uh, I will be doing much better next week when I'll be on spring break. (laughs) Me too. So... So yeah, our th- our third installment of this particular triptych will be um, me, me and Farmer are going to be free and easy. Meanwhile, uh, our third partner, uh, Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. What will be going on in your next week? I am on spring break right now, so uh, I'll actually be <laughs> relaxing a lot more when I get back to work because we just got back from uh, Disney World and we did a four-day whirlwind there. Uh, so I am just catching up on my rest right now. Oof. No, no, no rest for the the weary or the wicked or I don't remember how that saying goes. No rest for the wicked queen. I think would be appropriate in this instance. <laughs> nice. Indeed. Nathan, do you regret not visiting Disney World with the Farmers and the Grubbses last year? (laughs) Uh, I'll tell you what. I mean, I enjoy uh, Disney World a lot more when it is 70 degrees rather than 98 degrees. So, uh, no, I don't regret it that much. I don't know if the listeners have heard this story, but it was so hot at Disney World I got shingles. Yes. Um, The man has a fair point. Uh, I enjoyed it though. It was it was a good time. Um, I, I I I still kind of look back on that and and regret that we didn't figure out some way to record some sort of something live because you know that was like lightning striking. Uh, I just wish I could have followed you around with a video camera as you walked through Adventureland. Yeah. Yeah. It, what was it you called it? Basically, like uh, the inside of David Grubbs's mind. Yeah, that's pr- that's pretty much what it is. Well, before we, uh, uh, in, instead of getting sidetracked by the inside of, of David Grubb's mind, instead we'll be sidetracked by one of the formative texts of the inside of Nathan Gilmore's mind. How was that segue? Uh, we are in the second part of our Nature of Doctrine uh, trilogy, the uh, book Nature of Doctrine, Religion and Theology in a Post-Liberal Age by the late George Lindbeck, who passed away in January, correct? That's how I remember it, yeah. Okay, and uh, a Lutheran theologian? I think I, bl- I think I remember that rightly. I should know that, David, but I am blanking right now. Yes, I believe he was Lutheran. Yes, I, th- I, think, that's, I think that's right. So, Nature of Doctrine 2, and we're dealing with chapters 3 and 4, Uh, Chapter 3, Many Religions and the One True Faith. And Chapter 4, Theories of Doctrine. Exciting titles. So, Nathan, in Chapter 3, Lindbeck is testing his cultural linguistic model of doctrine uh, in what he considers an essential but a difficult task, which is allowing for and making sense of claims of religious superiority. I'm a proposition guy. Those kinds of things don't seem super hard to me. But Lindbeck admits that it's a challenge for his non-theological theory of religion. So I guess you can take this opportunity to remind us of the three models of religion we discussed last week. And then what are the three sorts of truth that they represent, uh, that they can present in this chapter? And what might a superior truth claim look like? in each of those models. Sure thing. So first of all, the three models. 
Uh, first of all, you have the cognitive propositional model. Uh, so this is theology that is uh, in crude terms, and I'm going to use crude terms in here so we can do it quickly, uh, something analogous to physics or chemistry. In other words, you can take a theological claim about the way that you can take a claim in uh, organic chemistry. Uh, you can do you know, a set of commonly accepted tests, if you will, although it won't necessarily be in a laboratory. Uh, <laughs> and on the other end, you can judge between the claims and say that, you know, this one is verifiably truer than the other one. So I'm going to kind of do both of the parts of the question at once, David, it seems. Uh, then you have the experiential emotivist or the experiential expressivist model. He kind of goes between those terms with some uh, fluidity. This is the way of thinking about different religions and different traditions within a religion that makes all of them expressions of a common core of experience. Uh, so, for instance, uh, you know, the Schleiermachian uh, idea of the, uh, what is it, the feeling of absolute dependence uh, would mm -hmm. be one version of this theory. Uh, so, for instance, the desire to uh, escape the cycle of reincarnation for a Buddhist uh, on the one hand, and then the desire to enter into a kingdom uh, at the in the age after this age for a Christian uh, are are basically you know two different ways to give visible form to a similar and in fact an identical invisible experience. Now in this one, you know Lindbeck uh, does quite well to note that it is very very difficult to say that one religion is truer than the other one. In the propositional model, uh, whichever one passes the tests of truth better than the other one is the truer one, simple enough. Uh, in this one, it would be something analogous to, you know, which, uh, which one is the more experience, experience uh, and, you know, because there aren't necessarily tests or criteria that we can hold in common for that, uh, you know, it runs into certain obstacles. So, in, in other words, any tradition like Judaism, Islam, certain kinds of Buddha, Buddhism, not Buddhism, Buddhism, uh, <laughs> Christianity, uh, you know, that make the claim of superseding something before, right? So, I mean, if the Buddha genuinely thinks that his change of life from one way of life to another is a truer way of life, and if those who, you know, adhere to that kind of way of life say that this is a better way, um, it's impossible to judge yay or nay whether that's the case or not. So that one definitely runs into the most problems when it comes to claims of superiority. Now, the cultural linguistic model, and this is the one that George Lindbeck is advancing, uh, is rooted in, you know, philosophies of language, philosophies of experience, things like that. Uh, and it is post-liberal, as the subtitle of the book indicates. So what it's interested in is not beginning with a common context in which these claims contend. Uh, so for the propositional model, that would be the common context of the test of truth, right? You know, the Buddhist claim versus the Christian claim, which one comes out more true when you test them, that's the winner. The experiential claim, Buddhism, Christianity, mere expressions of a common invisible reality, there's really no way to test that against each other. In this one, in the cultural linguistic model, Lindbeck claims that uh, what becomes possible is to talk about each one as having its own system, its own grammar, uh, so that, for instance, uh, when a Christian talks about the religion of ancient Israel, uh, it can talk about it as inherently true uh, on its own terms, which is you know one of the things that we as Christians tend to say about that. Uh, but on the other hand, that it can be superseded in some way. And I realize that word is a, a tricky one. And again, I'm, I'm painting in very uh, broad brush strokes, a la Danny Anderson right here. Uh, so listeners, if you have a better term for that, please let me know. But the idea is that the religion of ancient Israel can have certain elements that find their fulfillment, to use the Gospel of Matthew's language, uh, in the tradition of following and worshiping Jesus so that it doesn't stop being true, and yet there is something beyond it that is uh, intelligibly, well, I mean, superior to it.
And so, uh, you know, in that cultural linguistic model, again, uh, what we're looking at is a system that begins with a respect for particularity. Uh, so, for instance, you know, it's not uh, the question that so often, you know, comes up in dorm rooms in Christian colleges, you know, will the person living in the, you know, dark forests of the subcontinent uh, find salvation if they've never heard of Jesus? The question becomes, uh, what is that person living in the dark forests of the sub subcontinent looking for in the first place? What can Christian theology say about that search on its own terms? And, you know, would it be possible that our own Christian traditions could be enriched by listening to those people in that tradition. So, you know, in some senses, this is a uh, descriptive project, like we talked about in the first episode on this. Uh, but what Limbeck is trying to do is to do a descriptive project that, unlike the experiential expressivist model, uh, has the capacity to take these traditions seriously on their own terms when one of them says, our God is the true God, and those other gods are idols in some sense. Uh, it doesn't adjudicate between them on a common playing field as the propositional model does, but neither does it reduce all of it to invisible experience as the liberal model does. So uh, I'm at this point looping around myself, David. So, I mean, what else would you add to that? I would, I would just ask for a little clarification on... Uh, his use of the word category because he, he he'll he'll he says on uh, 48 that the question of comparing religions within um, the cultural linguistic model is testing the adequacy of their categories now is he saying that there is some kind of meta reality against which the categories of different systems can be tested I, I, I was really uncertain to say I, w I was uncertain how the the testing of categories to see whether they are adequate between traditions is how, how that works without becoming without edging over into the propositional or the experiential the sense that I get uh, and I didn't spend a whole lot of time on this page so I'm kind of winging it here uh, the sense that I get is that he's dealing with the phenomenon here of two people who are comparing religions one to one. All right. So in other words, uh, they are both trying to convince each other of the truth of their own traditions. Uh, and what happens, I mean, is something that, yeah, I mean, what, what you just described, I mean, you know, in the context of that encounter there is the possibility that one of them will be more adequate to the range of experiences that the two people have than the other one is. Okay, so for instance, um, this theory, uh, if Lindbeck is right, allows for the possibility of religious conversion precisely for this reason. The person who is the, uh, you know, the, I guess the metaphysical materialist, to just pick an easy example, uh, could become convinced in a conversation with someone who has the capacity in her system for spiritual realities that in fact the experiences of human existence make more sense if you have those categories in place than they would otherwise and likewise you know someone who could convert from Judaism to Islam or from Buddhism to Presbyterianism or whatever else so I mean I think that yeah, I mean, he, he does want to allow the possibility that people could change based on these encounters. What he's trying to avoid is a single meta system that is, that is more ultimate, let's put it that way, than the boundaries that the theologies lay down themselves. Does that distinction make any sense? So these conversations require people with horizons that actually bump into each other in order for that category comparison to even happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the kind of encounter I think that he prefers to academics sitting in a department of religious studies saying, what are the boundaries for all possible religions and outside of which we won't call it religion anymore? Okay. 
And it's not propositional because it's not individual propositions that are being evaluated, right? So the superiority takes place on the macro level as opposed to the individual statement level. Is that accurate? Yeah, and if I and if I could take it beyond what Lindbeck does here, because of course you know other theologians take his work and run with it. Um, John Milbank's book from uh, several years later, I don't think quite a decade later, called uh, Theology and Social Theory. Uh, I don't know how much he uses Lindbeck. In fact, I think he cites him at the end and talks about it as, as inadequate. But he still <laughs> uses this idea um, that, you know, the contest between religions uh, is not something that happens on a proposition-by-proposition proposition basis in some sort of experimental test. But what Milbank does that Lindbeck doesn't, and I really do think it's a more adequate way to treat it, uh, is to talk about it as an aesthetic uh, rather than a verification experience. Uh, so in other words, it's not as if the syllogism falls into place and then a switch flips, but right. rather one picture of reality, one symphony of the spirit, ends up being more compelling to the soul than the other one, and that's when religious conversion happens. This is Pascal, right? I mean... The idea is to make Christianity lovable rather than to prove it through a mathematical series of propositions. That's fair enough. I mean, you know, obviously Lindbeck mm -hmm. is responding more to Friedrich Nietzsche than he is to Blaise Pascal, but I, I think there's certainly some common threads there. Nietzsche's just bargain basement mm -hmm. Pascal anyway. <laughs> well, maybe this is something that we can pursue another time with uh, a different reading because um, I, I think you guys might be able to point me in the, in, the, in the direction of something that could feed this question better. Um, but is it possible to think of theological proposition as a kind of ekphrastic exercise working from that aesthetic experience that you're talking about, Nathan? Um, I, I, th I think it is, yeah, and I think that's what Lindbeck is proposing here. Okay. He gets at that later, right? He talks about how the correspondence theory of truth works only within, or at least begins only within the coherence theory of truth. That's about right. The, co the coherence theory of truth I've always heard described as an aesthetic view, in the sense that, you know, to say that there are orcs in Middle Earth doesn't correspond with reality but it does hold together in within the system that tolkien has created the imaginative world i guess rather than system hmm. something that's been um i don't know resurrected in in some of the uh so some of the efforts to sort of re-engage the, the the fathers and uh, medieval theologians is bringing back the notion of testing a doctrine according to its fittingness, which is not exactly the same as its logic. Um, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe, that, maybe that might be a kind of, um, if not exactly the same, exactly the same notion, at least uh, something in the history of the church and its thinking about a doctrine that might, um, maybe a horizon touches that, I don't know. <laughs> well, David, I mean, even from a even from a propositional point of view, and I know I know that that's the group you have identified yourself with. Um, even from a propositional point of view, think about how many theological propositions are completely unverifiable, and that you accept based on how well they fit in with the propositions that you feel are verifiable. Does that make sense? That's fair. Um, my, my, I, I guess when I say I'm a proposition guy, I need to step back from that and say, I want to defend the possibility of propositions continuing to be important, even if propositions are not in themselves a sufficient holistic mode for describing the total um, Christian experience reality. Bad news uh, for you, David. If that makes sense. You have just described Lindbeck's position, as I understand it. Gosh dang it. <laughs> the propositions, propositions still exist, and you can use them, but they're not, they're not primary. Hmm. Hmm. 
Hmm. Hmm. Hmm. Your your anger for the rest of this episode is going to be drastically misplaced, David. (sighs) Well, let's get to the things that make me grumpy. Um, Dear listeners, um, whenever we do one of these triptychs and... uh, uh, and are sharing material in this way. Um, One of the most fun things for me as a host is to see the ways that each of us chart a course through the book. Um, In my particular case, I'm charting my course through these couple of chapters with a kind of angry machete approach. So maybe that's not the fairest thing and we'll, we'll, we'll see what you guys can do to balance me out as we go. Um, one of Lindbeck's desired features for a model of doctrine is, quote, a way to allow for the desirability of non-proselytizing interreligious dialogue. So, Michael, if we are not proselytizing the heathen, what sort of things are we going to talk about with them? Um, what kind of interreligious conversations does he think his way of approaching religion makes possible? The task may sometimes be, he says, to make people better adherents of their own religion rather than convert them to Christianity. I had always heard Brian McLaren say things like this, so I, I was I, I, not surprised exactly, but uh, that rang a bell for me. Uh, but what exactly that means, making people better adherents of their own religion, um, Lindbeck doesn't really say what that means, so it could mean helping a Marxist to purify Marxism from the inside, purify meaning finding some middle ground between Marxism and Christianity and then bringing the Marxist closer to it. But I don't think so, um, because the the point of interfaith dialogue is to listen to one another, not to impose our views on them. And that really is imposing your views in some sense, right? It's trying to make Marxism more like Christianity. He does say on 54 that admittedly their notion of what a better Marxist etc is will be influenced by christian norms so yeah he right how could it not be yeah so so he 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 owns up to you (laughs) uh he holds up this possibility that i know we'll talk about in a few minutes that the opportunity for salvation comes at the moment of death so it may mean that our job is to help people learn to begin to speak the christian language that will allow them to accept that opportunity um And the language metaphor might help here, actually. So if you want to teach someone a language that they don't speak, you have to approach them in their language. Just screaming at an English speaker in French isn't going to teach them French. The only way you do it is by building this common ground. Well, these words mean similar things, and these concepts don't really have translation. So maybe you need to learn the French so that you understand what this concept means. I think maybe that's how interfaith dialogue is supposed to work. That, that, That doesn't make... You the uh, you the French speaker a fluent speaker of English, and it won't make the English speaker a fluent speaker of French, but it'll give both of you a little bit more vocabulary, a little bit wider understanding, expanded horizon, to use the term you've used a couple times. I will say, he says, uh, this is page sixty-one. One of the ways in which Christians can serve their neighbors may be through helping adherents of other religions to purify and enrich their heritages. Isn't that kind of what Christian humanists do? Not not necessarily this podcast, um, but when you teach uh, whatever it is you teach, when you teach the Odyssey, you're coming at that from the outside. And if an ancient Greek was in the room, which I guess he's not, you would <laughs> you would be pointing out you would be pointing out things in that heritage that they wouldn't be able to see specifically because they are um, in the culture. So I, I, I think the attitude here is not unfamiliar to English teachers, at least English teachers who are not just brazenly political in their views of what literature accomplishes. Nathan? Yeah, I think that the literature professor analogy really does some work here because, uh, you know, in my own literature classes, I teach not only Homer, but also passages from the Quran, passages from the Bhagavad Gita, and again, you know, my aim when I do that is not simply to say, uh, Arjuna addresses Krishna as my Lord. Wrong! You know, <laughs> Quran says, you know, when Jesus comes back and 
you know, Allah asks him, did you say that you were the son of God? And he'll say, no, wrong. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I could do that. You know, it might even amuse me. Uh, but, you know, what I'm trying to do when I introduce my Christian college students to those texts uh, is to bring, their, bring them imaginatively alongside the logic and the grammar of those kinds of ways of life uh, to some extent so that they can see in greater relief the contours of their own way of life. In other words, to make opaque what was once transparent. You know, this was um, the point, I think, of, you know, the the joke about, you know, how's the water at the beginning of, you know, the, um, oh shoot, not David Bentley Hart, the other uh, <laughs> pretentious David. David. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, David Foster Wallace's uh, This Is Water Address, right? You become aware of the water uh, so that you can open up possibilities to exist differently, not as something other than a fish, but as a fish who's more aware, right? And I'm probably taking that joke entirely, you know, too seriously, but uh, it's this kind of thing that I think that uh, both projects are after. One of the things uh, I, I think he mentions is in, in there is... is just the basic possibility of co-belligerence um, when there's agreement on ethical principle or social stance. Um, you know, and th and that, uh, that I think m makes, uh, makes a certain sort of sense and in, in his, uh, in his way of kind of theorizing what religions are, um, that helps too because um, if, if you are approaching things mainly theologically um, that could seem like a sort of betrayal but if what, what you're looking at is um, in some sense cultures that are trying to figure out how to be neighbors and occupy the same polis um, those sorts of things make a bit more sense well I mean how much of the current ecumenism between evangelicals and Roman Catholics comes from a shared commitment to the pro-life movement. Uh, completely fair. Um, I, I think, uh, I think that might have been something we talked about last week. So go back, but go back and review if you haven't heard it, dear listener. I mean, on that same note, uh, this allows co-belligerence without having to have a unified theory uh, that basically reduces both of them to, you know, decoration that exists alongside the pro-life movement or environmental concerns or whatever else, right? Uh, we can, in the context of genuine difference, uh, struggle together for certain causes uh, without necessarily uh, reducing either tradition uh, to mere, you know, superstructure, if you want to use the Marxist terminology, or decoration, if you want to use, you know, Tom Paine's uh, implicit metaphor from Age of Reason, and neither uh, neither community need be pursuing that same goal for the same reason. Right. Well, one quick bunny trail in this section. Um, Lindbeck cites Amos nine seven to eight uh, as biblical evidence that, and here's this quote that nations other than Israel, and by extension religions other than the biblical ones, are also peoples elected, and failing, to carry out their distinctive tasks within God's world. So what do you think of this reading of Amos? Um, and does uh, to do the work uh, that Lindbeck says it does does it do the work that Lindbeck says it does for biblically grounding this theory of interreligious dialogue? I, I think that he probably could have picked better passages, honestly. Uh, I think that this <laughs> passage in Amos, and really the first couple chapters in Amos, uh, give us a pretty good vision in that prophetic mode uh, of the nations as being partners with Yahweh uh, in the project that we call the world. Um, you know, when Yahweh sends word to uh, Moab and Edom and, you know, all these different powers, there's definitely a sense that uh, whether they 
call out the name Yahweh or not, they are accountable and responsible for living as nations that, you know, Yahweh allows to continue to exist. Um, I think that Malachi 1, honestly, is a more interesting text for this kind of thing. Uh, when we get to, you know, along about verse 9, um, and let's see here, actually, I'll start in verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. Haha, <laughs> kindle fire. Um, I am not pleased with you, <laughs> says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, in that you say, The table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say how tiresome it is as you disdainfully sniff of it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery, and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord. So, you know, the image here is of, you know, nations. You could really read, you know, this vision of the future in a, in a couple different ways. One is that they will become all part of, you know, a grand... Uh, I guess, super Solomonic empire uh, in which a common cult will, you know, run the priesthood for all of them. Uh, although we saw how well that happened with Solomon, you know, the, uh, the, there was more religion being imported than exported, I fear, in that day. Uh, or it could be that, you know, there is this vision that, you know, Malachi is setting forth uh, that all of the nations uh, in all of their particularity will be offering praises to the Lord. So, you know, I think that when we look at Amos or when we look at Malachi or we look at Jonah for that matter, uh, you know, we are certainly looking at, you know, prophets who have a vision that outruns the political possibilities of their own day and the cultic possibilities of their own day. Uh, you know, as for Lindbeck's reading of it, you know, I mean... Uh, I think that it makes a certain homiletic sense, even if we don't want to push it in historical directions. But honestly, I tend to read the uh, oracles of the prophets more homiletically than historically in most cases anyway. So have I at all hit the question that you're posing, David, or am I running circles around it as I tend to do? Well, it's his, his the, the use that he puts of it is basically to say this is, this is warrant for us to... Um, as us as Christians to well per, per, pursue what y'all said earlier of you know maybe my agenda as a Christian is going to uh, is going to be to say be be Buddhist be the best Buddhist you can be because God ordained the existence of Buddhism and there is some great sovereign work of good in the world that can only be achieved by the best Buddhism that could possibly be. And he cites, I, he seemed to be citing this text as the, as his biblical warrant for that argument. And then at the top of 55 says, this is obviously a biblical argument for a practice of interreligious dialogue that was unthinkable in biblical times and that the Bible nowhere discusses. <laughs> so I, I, it felt as if he just wanted to find a verse for something that, I don't think the Hebrew scriptures have any interest in doing. Um, I mean, there's so much of polemic against the idolatry, not just of Israel, but against the idolatry of the nations, the ignorance of the nations. Um, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine one of the, uh, a prophet of Judah or Israel saying, yes, my, my, my job is to get Egyptians to become the best raw worshipers they can possibly be for the sake of our God, Yahweh. That it, it just feels bizarre in the in the the world of the Old Testament to 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 think that thought. Don't you think it has a lot of cohesion with C.S. Lewis saying that Christianity is the fulfillment of all religions and not just Judaism? Yes, but I think C.S. Lewis also. Th if were, were he alive and talking to us would say that and the direction that that fulfillment goes is is Christianity word 
and what those religions need to do is to move towards Christianity to find that fulfillment. Yeah, fair enough. You know, it's... Yeah. I keep wanting to yell Psalm (laughs) 96.5. That's understandable. I I, I guess the (laughs) scenario that I'm imagining is George Lindbeck working in a Yale University religion area uh, alongside, you know, professors of Islamic studies. Uh, You know, the question that you posed at the beginning of the episode, David, I mean, what do they talk about? Um, You know, do they have a language within which they can talk about, you know, their own traditions, um, you know, without every conversation being attempt for each to proselytize the other. In other words, you know, uh, can the Christian say there are things that um, I see in the historical riches of Islam that I can commend? Yeah, I... I just feel like I I feel like that's a that's a that's a kind of conversation that you can have without without that same theological framework. I don't yeah. I'm I'm skeptical for reasons I have difficult I'm having a difficult time to articulate. Right. And I mean, you know, to be fair, he does grant, I mean, in that paragraph that you read aloud, uh, that, you know, this is not a conversation that would have occurred to the prophets themselves. I mean, this is his using their vision, their, you know, this picture that, you know, uh, and I forget, were you quoting Malachi or was I quoting Malachi? That Amos, Amos was uh, putting forth before Israel, right? You know, so he grants this is a uh, much later appropriation of and, you know, extension of that vision. Uh, so, I mean, I think that he would grant that, you know, if you want to say this is an invalid direction for that vision to travel, you can make that argument. Hmm. Maybe this is the thing I'll have to put back on my hopper and gestate for another day. Well, mainly because we can't talk about it forever, right? I don't know what kind of brief bunny trail that was, David. I Yeah, it wasn't super brief, was it? I am also predictably cranky, Michael, about his discussion of salvation and other faiths. Um... And I don't want this conversation to be dominated by my crankiness. Um, Lindbeck says that the chapter at the chapter start that quote the possibility of salvation outside the one true faith is of great importance to many people in our day. And so this is one of the things he sees that that commends his model because it can it can present this thing that seemed that that was of great importance to people. Um, so how does he explain that possibility within his model? I've already answered this to some extent, because what he does is he holds out the possibility that salvation comes not in this life, but at the moment of death. What he says is, salvation's not really even an option for non-Christians. And in fact, damnation is also not even an option, because salvation and damnation are words that really only make sense within Christian culture and within Christian language. That's why the moment of death is so important. I suppose you're pulled out of your culture. Um, And he actually, I thought one thing that was interesting is he says that this whole system is much more dangerous for Christians than non-Christians because judgment and damnation begin within the church, not without it. And so salvation is going to be accepted by people who have learned to speak however poorly the Christian language and the the issue here is that some people who think that they're Christians may be speaking another language and think that they're speaking Christianly and are not and so they won't recognize the choice when it's given to them and he says either way all of us are novices at speaking Christianly so there's really no reason to be proud of ourselves anyway this is this is how he maintains salvation by by grace alone uh, is by is by suggesting that none of us are terribly good at speaking this way. But I, I think if you've if you're even getting the rudiments of the language down, if you're at least speaking the right language poorly, 
it means you have accepted or will accept salvation. Is that accurate? I mean, is that accurately what he says, not do you agree with it? What do you think, Nathan? about how I read it, yeah. And I mean, what I find interesting about it is that he brings it into contact with uh, some patristic texts. So, I mean, over on 58, um, and let me see here, about the middle of the page, Christians in the first centuries appear to have had an extraordinary combination of relaxation and urgency in their attitude towards those outside the faith. On the one hand, they do not seem to have worried about the ultimate fate of the overwhelming majority of the non-Christians among whom they lived. We hear of no crises of conscience resulting from the necessity that they were often under to conceal the fact that they were believers, even from close friends or kindred. Christians did not seem to have viewed themselves as watchmen who would be held guilty of the blood of the pagans they failed to warn. The Old Testament text refers, after all, to the obligation to admonish not Gentiles, but those who are already part of the chosen people. Yet, on the other hand, I thought he was going to get the other hand faster. Yet, on the other hand, missionary proclamation was urgent and faith and baptism were life from death. Uh, the passage, yeah, the passage from the old age into the new, from the point of view of most subsequent theologies, the anomalies and the cognitive dissonance involved in this combination of attitudes would seem to be insupportable, and it is therefore at least plausible to suppose that these early Christians had certain unrecorded convictions that would relieve the tensions about how God saves unbelievers. So, you know, I, what I read there uh, is the commonly found, uh, if you read around long enough, universalism in some, not all, of the patristic writers, right? To the point that, you know, the great question is not, uh, you know, will the person in the forest of the subcontinent be saved, but in the end, will Satan also receive salvation? Uh, you know, there's a, again, you know, a sense that the saving work is all God, and oh, how Lutheran does Lindbeck sound here, uh, but that the work of proclaiming that salvation does in fact fall to the faithful, so therefore there is an urgency to it, uh, because the world needs to hear this genuinely good news that is coming to the world. So, you know, in, in my mind, what that says is that we actually have time to listen to and learn from those of other traditions, evaluating, of course, everything under the light of the event of Christ's death and resurrection. Uh, but, you know, the sense that, you know, if we spend any of our time listening rather than uh, insisting that they get dunked right there and then, as I show my own church roots, uh, that sort of moral panic, if you will, doesn't necessarily need to be part of the picture. And I feel like I'm wandering a field again, David, so help me out here. I, I don't think you're wandering a field. I think you're pursuing exactly what, the, the, what, what he lays out. Um, it just... This is the thing that strikes me weird. If, if, uh, if the only possibility of damnation lies with those who know the language if the danger is apostasy um then hadn't we better not just not tell anybody i don't think that's the only possibility for damnation because the way he presents this presumably at the at the moment of death you could reject salvation and, and my guess is you would reject it because you don't really understand what it is you've made your soul this thing that won't accept it whatever um but i i don't think he suggests damnation is only for the apostates i just think he thinks those of us inside the church had better be very very careful about this because we may have accepted a false gospel without realizing it well, I, i'd like i'd really like to hear him or read him because because the other's not happening right now, um, I, I would like to hear him say that his that his postmortem second chance isn't also a kind of default universalism. Because if the if 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 damnation is only for those who know and reject, then the safe thing for Christians to do is just to hide their light under a bushel, because that light's dangerous, y'all. It could burn people. Um, but that, but if that what only you say makes sense, that only makes sense if Christianity is exclusively about the afterlife. 
if in fact the eternal life is among us and before us and a possibility for us, then it makes all the sense of the world to invite people into that life uh, before they stop breathing. So, right. I mean, you know, I, I, I grant that, you know, uh, if you are, you know, going strictly with the, you know, the final tally mark, uh, once you stop breathing as the important thing, then that makes a certain degree of sense. But again, that urgency, even of the people who regarded Jesus as, you know, saving all, right? Uh, even those folks had a certain urgency about the proclamation of the gospel there in the early centuries. And there has to be some reason for that. So again, I mean, as a descriptive project, I think what Lindbeck wants to say is that um, this way of life and, you know, this proclamation and this truth uh, is something that is genuinely good for other people, which lends, its a, lends itself, pardon me, a certain urgency, uh, even as we can say, and, you know, I think he would argue responsibly, uh, that, you know, the universal true, you know, salvation claims uh, that are there in the New Testament, I would argue, uh, mean that it's a different kind of picture than the one in which the salvation or damnation of the person in front of me relies on my rhetorical per performance in this moment. And I realize, Grubbs, you are reformed. You would never say that kind of a thing. Exactly. But there are Christians... <laughs> who have that kind of anxiety. Would you agree with that? No, that's true. And I've had that anxiety in my life that, you know, whether someone's eternal state really, really did depend on whether or not I nail this conversation. Um, I have to stick the landing and the consequences are eternal. Um, uh, I, I, but I have other theological resources for addressing what I think what, what, what I would agree with you is an unscriptural anxiety right there. Um, I, I just have to say this is not the version of universalism I find particularly compelling. The one I like is the notion that God doesn't stop pursuing you even after death. Which I think, I got it from Madeline Lingle, I think it's also Origen's position. Yeah, that's recognizably from Origin of Alexandria. So, I mean, how, how would you describe Lindbeck's project differing from that? He seems to me, in the three paragraphs he devotes to this, he, <laughs> seems, he, seem, he seems to me to be suggesting there is such a thing as damnation. It's just the, the, choice, the choice, you have some choice after death rather than, um, rather than only during life. Whereas I think you do have a choice. I mean, I, I the the what I what I take to be the origin Madeline Lingle position, and I'm not saying I agree with this, but if I were a universalist, this is it's kind of like that O.J. Simpson book. If I did it, here's how. Um, <laughs> with the um, with the really really tiny if. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, what what I'm taking them to say is that you 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 get a choice, but nobody can hold out forever. You know, eventually, eventually the parts of you that are that are holding out will be purged away and there will be universal reconciliation, including, I believe, Origen says Satan. You mentioned that earlier. I think that's I think that's his position. I know it's Madeline Lingle's. Um, so if I were going to be a universalist, which I am, I don't know, two or three days a week, um, <laughs> that, that's that's the one I would pick, not this thing where you for some reason get to choose right after death and if you've started speaking the language you like that doesn't make any sense to me enough mm. i mean i think honestly again just on a descriptive level he's trying to make sense of a lot of the passages in the new testament that are and the old testament for that matter that are geared towards those who are already part of the community and saying do not forsake what it is that you've received mm -hmm. judgment begins first at the house of god yeah, I mean, I, 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 w I would, I would agree that those are those are serious calls that are in the scripture that need to be made sense of. Um, the biblical view is not that God's people just can just kind of huddle together and go neener neener neener. We've got the salvation and you ain't. Um, there, there's definitely a serious call for, um, for fear of judgment even within, um, within the congregations not not just outside but anyway right. and i mean this is why you know the metaphor of adultery 
and sometimes it's quite a metaphor indeed in the prophets uh, is so prominent, right? Uh, because this is a marriage that has gone astray. It's not, you know, two strangers uh, who have never met and therefore don't have much regard for each other. But I mean, this is a very personal, intimate act of betrayal. Mm. Though, you know, being a Calvinist, I think that per- that very personal, intimate act of betrayal happened in like Genesis three. But you know, um, but I, I I agree the 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 that real historical those real historical apostasies of Israel in particular in the prophecy and in, in the prophets as 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 adultery in real time, um, that's a thing to account for. And isn't that what James says when he calls uh, you adulteresses? You love the world more than you love Jesus? Something like that? And once again, David, you have studied James more recently than I have, so I'll just defer to you on this one. Yeah, I think that's in there. We'll, 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 we'll say it is until someone corrects me. Well, let's de-escalate this conversation, or at least let's de-escalate me. Um, chapter 4 introduces an important and useful distinction, uh, the difference between theology and doctrine. So... What are those differences, Nathan? And how is the cultural linguistic model useful for understanding uh, the purpose doctrine serves for a community in a way that I'm actually totally on board with? So the basic uh, distinction between theology and doctrine for Lindbeck is that doctrine is the constellation or the system or the you know grouping of vocabularies and narratives and vocabularies, narratives, and symbols. That's the third one. I knew there was a third one. (laughs) Yes. Um, That constitute a tradition. So, for instance, you know, uh, the story of Israel being raised up out of Egypt, the story of Jesus being raised up from death, uh, the story that culminates with all of the faithful being raised uh, from this age into the next. I mean, all of those are narratives uh they have symbolic characters to them um and they involve a certain vocabulary that is not common to other traditions so just to take an easy example uh certainly any culture that has had marriage has to know something about forgiveness because if not it wouldn't have marriage for very long uh but the idea that a people can commit adultery against a god and then that god can forgive them for that adultery that's a storyline that has very definite historical particular origins in those Hebrew prophets. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when we spot something like that in a, you know, a Veda or in, you know, a, a, I don't think Shintoism has scriptures, but in a Shinto narrative, whatever that would look like, uh, we can say that, you know, we see certain resonances with it. But ultimately, it's not the doctrine of Hinduism or of Shinto or whatever else. All right. Theology, on the other hand, uh, is the second order systematic explanation of those doctrinal elements. So this is where uh, if two Christians disagree about the nature of the work of atonement, for instance, uh, one prefers to see it as a moral exemplar. Uh, that is a call for human beings to live a more forgiving life. Uh, and another one views it as a once-off, uh, once-for-all historical event that is a hinge on which history swings and after which uh, all of the sins that are committed are in some sense already forgiven by Christ. That's how I tend to narrate it. I realize other people do it differently. And the difference is the point. That theology can differ but you can still talk intelligibly about both parties differing within a system that you call Christian theology. Uh, So, you know, for instance, when, you know, David and I earlier were uh, disagreeing about the boundaries of that vision that Amos casts or that Malachi casts, we were disagreeing to be sure. I'm not saying that we were saying the same thing. And I'm not saying after the battle of the uh, experiential expressivists that we were both just giving a different decorative form uh, to a common inner psychological experience. What I am saying is that we are disagreeing about Christian scriptural exegesis uh, and therefore we can say simultaneously that we do not agree and we are both doing Christian theology. So uh, that's the basic you know, distinction that Lindbeck lays down. 
it's very useful, I mean, I think, for both interreligious dialogue, uh, you know, in which the Hindu is speaking with the Catholic, and for what I would call, you know, uh, theological disputes within a tradition, you know, where the Presbyterian is disagreeing with the Eastern Orthodox. Uh, you know, philosophically, it gives you a vocabulary for describing what's going on here. So, as far as how it serves the community, this is important, again, because uh, within an intelligible tradition of doctrine, you're going to have these common narrative symbolic elements. Um, and what that allows for is, you know, some genuine ecumenical disagreement that does not result in separatism. Uh, so again, you know, from the very beginning of the book, what, what Lindbeck is reaching for is the possibility of ecumenical engagement that takes particularity seriously, even as it keeps people in the room long enough to be particular with each other rather than apart from each other. So uh, that's generally speaking what I see it doing. I mean, David, I, uh, I'm, I'm glad that we found something in Lindbeck that doesn't anger you. So uh, how did you uh, receive this section? I've got to say I received it through a Van Hoosierian filter <laughs> um, because I wasn't aware of it until you made me read this book. And now's the part where I go, oh, okay, I guess I like some Lindbeck. Um, apparently Lindbeck's project is one that was um, has been hugely influential on setting some projects of a theologian that I admire, Kevin Van Hooser. And his book, The Drama of Doctrine, um, he, he explicitly frames it um, as, a, as a somewhat similar, though with some, dif with some, some, some different points, but a, a similar project to Lindbeck's. And the thing that he's particularly interested in is the way that um, doctrine is enacted in community, the way that it shapes the life of the community, the, may, the way that doctrine becomes authentic because of the way we live it in community, um, the ways that those community practices um, shape us as ones who can rightly understand the doctrine um, for ways that go beyond rational apprehension of the propositions. Um, that th Those are things I feel like uh, when, I, when I'm looking at Lindbeck, I, I feel like I'm I'm reading some of those same sort of resources and categories that I've gotten from another direction um, with some different emphases, with some, some different concerns, but still with a um, e even, even that kind of ecumenical um, desire for there to be conversation amongst those whose, um, whose practices cohere um, even while their theological accounts for those practices might differ, um, and yeah, so so th this this section got um, more appreciation from me for for reasons. Well, Michael, so what ways does Lindbeck offer for making sense um, through this through this distinction of both doctrinal stability and the possibility of doctrinal change? Um. The expressivist view has absolutely no way to talk about this because there is no doctrinal stability and ultimately everything has to be in flux. So it has no vocabulary. The propositional view has a hard time squaring this circle though because there's no good answer, according to Lindbeck, for how new doctrines are born over time, nor is there a good answer for how old doctrines get reinterpreted and still maintain their validity, nor is there a good answer for how doctrines that once contradicted each other become reconciled. That's the ecumenical question. The cultural linguistic view, as you would expect him to say, makes more sense and has more success. So what is doctrinally specific in Christianity springs from the stories that Christianity tells. So the propositions exist, but they only have meaning within those stories. Uh, so doctrines form regulative principles of a religion. Sometimes that's explicitly, but mostly it's implicitly. And, and what doctrines do is they give shape to a common religious way of life and then a set of beliefs that goes along with that. And that means they can be reformulated, but 
you have to keep their original creation in mind when you reformulate them. So reformulation is not just restatement, uh, but it's also not anything goes. So you have to work within the spirit of the original formulation. So he uses a grammar metaphor here, a Latin grammar metaphor. Uh, a restatement, a reformulation of amo, amas, amat is not amo, amas, amat. It's rogo, rogas, rogat. It's the same structure with, with a little bit different content, but it, it has maintained the grammar of the statement. Now, some things really are eternal, which means, you know, you would never reformulate them. But other things appear to be eternal, but are really socially determined. And the trick here is to determine which things are which. So in all ages, God is the creator of all things. But what that looks like for a first century Christian is going to be very influenced by Plato, specifically by the Timaeus, whereas what it looks like for us is more influenced by Darwin. But we agree about the, the basic structure of that, uh, that doctrine, which is that God is the creator of all things. So he ends up going through this taxonomy. Um, you have some things, and he starts with practices. So some practices are unconditionally necessary. You cannot discard them without stepping outside the faith altogether. And the big one there is to love God and love your neighbor. If you're not doing that, you can reasonably be said to not be acting like a Christian. So those are unconditionally necessary. Conditionally essential things, and I don't know why he moves from necessary to essential, but it's annoying. Uh, <laughs> conditionally essential things can't be discarded as long as particular states of affairs are in place. And he, he thinks certain forms of nonviolence work this way. Uh, uh, just war theory, for example. Uh, as long as these conditions are met, it's okay to go to war. And as long as they're not met, it's not okay. Conditionally essential things are sometimes permanently conditionally essential, and that happens when the relevant conditions are always going to be true. So you have to feed the poor uh, as long as the poor are always with you, and of course the poor will always be with you. So that's conditionally essential, but it's more or less permanently conditionally essential. If you don't have poor, you don't have to feed them, uh, but you're always going to have poor. Uh, and then there's temporarily conditionally essential. It's fun to keep adding all these adverbs to the front. Um, and the temporarily conditionally essential are sometimes reversible. Uh, that's when a historical change has happened that may change back. So just war looks pretty difficult in the 21st century, but there's at least the possibility that a, a truly just war will be possible again. But then there's also irreversibly, temporarily, conditionally essential <laughs> practices uh, where the historical change is permanent. So the condemnation of slavery is a good example. Uh, it's, it's just probably not going to happen that we go back to a world in which Christians think slavery is okay. We know too much about slavery now. Slavery itself looked, looks so different now than it did that it's, it's just highly unlikely, if not impossible. Um, so those are all essential. And then there's, there's what's called accidentally necessary. This is where a practice didn't have to be the way it is, but it's pointless or it's overly painful to change it. And his example, and uh, this, this should be nicely controversial, is papal authority. Uh, so maybe, maybe we didn't have to have a pope. Maybe it could have worked out some way other than that. But if you're Catholic, that's the way it worked out, and you can't go back on it. I mean... That's, that's just how it is, but we recognize that it is the way it is because of historical contingency rather than necessity. Those are all practices what I talked about, but the same categories work for doctrines, except there's probably no such thing as accidentally necessary doctrines. What have I left out? Nathan? It sounded to me like you hit all the high points there. I mean, again, just to give a, a bird's eye view of the system that Michael just went over here I mean you know what he is after here is a vocabulary that you know to go back to the very beginning of the episode uh, allows us to insist on the particularity uh, of these traditions allows each tradition in the conversation to begin by asserting its superiority and yet to open up the possibility as we examine them uh, for people to change their minds uh, now, again, you know, the weakness that he sees with the propositional model uh, is that, generally speaking, you know, when people do have conversions from Reformed faith to Catholic faith, from Catholic faith to Eastern Orthodox faith, from Eastern Orthodox faith to Pentecostal faith, so on and so forth, um, 
what generally happens is not that they reach the end of a syllogism uh, and at the ergo they switch churches, but rather some other kind of process is going on. He's trying to offer a matrix within which that process makes sense as a historically contingent phenomenon. Uh, so I won't try to uh, reproduce the you know list of particulars that Michael just did. He did it quite nicely. But I think that's the purpose of creating that list of categories of you know doctrines and practices. Yeah, that was a virtuoso performance of probably the most complicated Punnett square ever. I had it written down, to be fair. I just didn't, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have the whole thing memorized. Yeah. I... The whole that that whole conversation, and again, this is something we don't have time for. I kept trying to think of test cases. Um, I, I don't know if you guys were doing the same thing of of what sorts of things would count, what sorts of things wouldn't, and what sorts of things would make me want to throw things at George Lindbeck again. But you know what? I, I've stopped throwing things at George Lindbeck. Question five happened. We've moved beyond it. So so far, this conversation has been steered by my admittedly hostile interests. So what are some things in these chapters worth pointing out that I skipped over? Uh, I'll let you start, Michael. Uh, I greatly enjoyed Lindbeck's shot at the Stone Campbell tradition. <laughs> uh, the, the denomination, uh, which I, I use that term advisedly, that Nathan belongs to, that claims to have no creed but Christ, that lack of doctrine becomes a doctrine, and so there's absolutely no way to escape doctrine so uh call that venal but i certainly enjoyed i certainly enjoyed that well and the first time i read this book was in a circle of stone campbell seminarians so uh rest assured we enjoyed it as well uh, <laughs> david my section that i really enjoyed uh is in the fourth chapter the one we ended on today uh in which Lindbeck, i mean really takes a turn towards the practical uh and says that as the emotive expressivist uh, vein of religious experience or religious expression, pardon me, uh, becomes more dominant. It might become more and more necessary uh, for a kind of re-education, if you will, or even a separatism, uh, in order that people can actually learn to speak Christian. Uh, and huh. I mean, if that sounds like Stanley Hauerwas, that means that you started reading theology in the '90s. And if it sounds like Rod Dreher, it means you've been on Twitter here in the last five years. <laughs> I wrote Ben up in the margin that, at that paragraph. <laughs> but you've only been on Twitter for a year and a half. Yeah, yeah. I'm a relative novice to that notion. Excellent. Well, guys, uh, next week is predictable, right? Except you're at the helm, Michael, right? Yes, we're finishing the book. That's chapters 5 and 6. Apparently some real, uh, real heavy, controversial stuff. I know you're going to love that. But then... I could not love it more. <laughs> Excellent. Well, dear listeners, um, we, have, we have poked and tipped and prodded lots of sacred cows this week. So um, in the event that I or Michael or Nathan offended you bitterly, um, you can send emails to us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post it on the show notes for this episode um, when they post on our blog at christianhumanist.org. Um, but please listen to the entire triptych before putting them into an iTunes review. <laughs> uh, I'm David Grubbs, uh, wishing you all grand weeks. Uh, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, our our uh, press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. And I will leave you with the words of Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong. Let your faith be stronger. <laughs>